1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semecka, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. We are recording this episode on Veterans Day, and it's fitting that we are discussing the Cold War. Today, we'll be talking to Tanya L. Roth about her book, Her Cold War, published by University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Roth, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that we can talk about this, have this conversation on Veterans Day in particular.
0: Dr. Roth, I wonder if we could begin the interview by you sharing a little bit about yourself.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, So I have my PhD in history from the uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, I'm not a college professor. I know most new books, especially academic books, come from college professors. But I teach high school at a private school in St. Louis. Uh, I went there right after my PhD. It's been a fantastic place for me these last 10 years. I get to teach ninth grade, 10th grade. I've added seventh grade, um, which for me, I think has been a really big part of helping me get to this point of writing this book that having the space these last 10 years to think about history in different ways and different levels and how we tell history this is definitely a fundamentally different book than it would have been 10 years ago Um, but i live in the st louis area with my husband and my eight-year-old son and um i'm pretty much a history geek who also reads a lot and watches dr who so i have to throw that in there
0: (laughs) that's great how did you come to write her cold war
1: Um, this was when I finished my degree and I I walked out the final year already with this job in hand and a lot of people said to me oh you're never going to write your book I said oh no I'm writing the book Uh, because when I was in the process of doing the dissertation one of the unexpected but best parts was getting to interview uh, a number of women across the country about their service and then also read other oral history accounts and listen to other history accounts and I thought these are stories that need to be told we don't recognize these women's contributions contributions enough in our history. And I want to tell these stories. I want to honor them in doing that and, and really add to our understanding of women's history. So I always had it as something I wanted to do. But the longer piece of it is that I, I kind of fell into the topic as an undergraduate thought it was just like a year-long project. I was doing World War One at the time. And then I was like, well, what happened next? Uh, and I just couldn't let it go. I, that led me to graduate school. So it's kind of been an obsession in a way. Um, but the big thing I think was I'm making that decision uh, 10 years ago to say, no, I'm going to do this. This is going to be a book that I write. And about five years ago, I started uh, the revision process and looked into how to go about it. Um, not easy when you're teaching full time I mean, for anybody teaching full-time college or anywhere but um doing it around a young child and uh trying to figure out how to redo this without, without the same support network that i had in graduate school um and uh a few times i thought it was going to disappear but to be honest uh in late 2018 i took a chance and sent off a version of this to the society for military history's Kaufman prize um and I thought, well, maybe maybe I'll, I'll get a, an honorable mention or something, and maybe that'll help me get a contract somewhere. And then I got notifications saying that I won. And that was, the, it Open doors, having that, being able to say, hey, this is a prize-winning manuscript. University of North Carolina Press was definitely interested, and the readers were interested. And, and it's been a couple of intense last two years of revising and going through the process.
0: <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, the Cold War is not a traditional period in U.S. women's history. In my Women's History course, we discuss women in the military during World War II, but then we turn to the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement. I think that this book really fills a gap in the study of uh, U.S. women's history. Can you explain the theme of your book?
1: Yes. I remember when I first started studying women's history, it wasn't something I encountered before undergraduate. And I think the things that stood out to me was this women's history. And my mother was born in the early 50s. And I remember wondering, oh, was my, my mom was the age to be an activist in the 70s, but she wasn't, she's not a person who identifies that way. So I think there's a little part of my head that was thinking about that, that yes, there are many women who were activists and active in change, and their stories are so important, it's fascinating, But there are other women who do things, too. And I was thinking about, like you said, there's that gap. We go from World War II to this change in the 60s, 70s. Um, But having grown up at the end of the Cold War, I was always thinking about the Cold War. And I thought, well, well, what happens after World War II? Um, So I think one theme of the book is how... We have these moments of change that happen and when we, you know, when we teach women's history, we talk about the different waves of feminism, but what happens in between the waves? Does it go away entirely? So I think one piece of it is how do women still press for change when they either don't identify as activists or when there's no activist movement to support them, which maybe leads us into activism later on. Um, But also it gets at how do we change how we think about gender roles. So one of the things, it's a time in the 40s and 50s when um, thinking in terms of women's jobs, there's a sense of um, what I call gender difference philosophy, thinking about men and women as having very distinct gender roles. And so they start conceptualizing what it means for women to be equal by thinking about Unique roles for women. Women are women, and here are the roles they can do as well or better than men. Um, We can have separate defined spaces for men and women and still have them both be equal. And that's not really the guiding principle anymore. Uh, The second wave feminist movement in the 70s gets us to what I call gender sameness philosophy, um, which is more about no, we're not going to worry about gender differences, it's more about individual basis. So what are your capabilities as a person versus my capabilities? Um, And how do we create roles in the military or other institutions based on that? And those two ideas of gender difference and gender sameness play a big role in how women's roles get defined, as you can imagine. But also um, it tells us something about how our society is changing and thinking about women's place in in work and national defense in
0: all areas. Oh yeah, so one of the great points that you make is that the military, not normally viewed as a progressive institution, was important in normalizing equal pay and promotion for women. Can you explain the importance of the policies that helped further women's rights? This was
1: one of the things that really got me into this. I think that was, again, with, at the time, a limited understanding of women's rights history, I I knew that equal pay was a sticking point. I knew equal pay was still a sticking point today. Um, And I thought, well, this is really interesting. Um, I noticed that in the late 40s, in 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act gives women equal pay. I was like, wait a second. They give women equal pay? Nobody's talking about this. 25 years later, women are asking for this, but nobody's talking about this in 1948. This seems like a really big deal. And part of it that they're dealing with is this is practicality. Um, During World War II, there have been women in all the different branches of the military. Um, First is auxiliaries, so they're kind of serving alongside of it. I kind of um, when I think of auxiliaries, I think in my brain, I go to the idea of a motorcycle with a sidecar, which is not like the best image maybe, but where um, you might have the army is driving the motorcycle and the woman's in the sidecar, maybe navigating, I don't know, but like attached to the military, but not fully in it uh, and not in control. And they have some problems early on in the 40s. And they're like, oh, this doesn't work. So if we make women auxiliaries, they can't get specific benefits and they're on a different unequal pay structure. And they're not necessarily thinking unequal is a problem in the 40s. It's more about how do we administer all these people as the military becomes this huge bureaucracy uh, that hadn't existed before the late 30s, early 40s. Um, So in the debates over the Women's Armed Services Integration Act in 47 and 48, Like, you know, it's really practical. If we can just make one pay scale, one promotion scale, they do create some separate promotion ladders um, in a couple cases. But in general, it's this basic idea. If you are a private, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, you're going to get the same pay. It doesn't include, for example, there are other places like combat pay during the Korean War and the Vietnam War. There will be instances in which men will make more money, but just based on rank, flat out rank, there's an equitable structure that's put into place that they're not worrying about, about gender. So that I think it's really important, even though there's, there's flaws to it, right? If men still have access to hazard pay or other benefits, there's still something that's not fully equal as we might imagine it today, but that's still an important foundation to say that, nope, we don't care what your gender is. You come in the military, you're going to be a private first class, come in private first class, and you're going to have the same pay. That was huge to me. There were um, other scholars like Dorothy Sue Cobble have talked about how women in labor unions were trying to get equal pay, but that wasn't really going anywhere. So this just seemed like, whoa, what's happening here? Um, and I think that's important. I think that um, becomes a standard in the government as a whole and other places. Um, but it's, we, we don't think about it. It just kind of, um, it just kind of disappears because I, I think we tend to think that so much more employment happens outside of the government or the military, but certainly the Cold War military was huge for so much of the time that it's it's worth thinking about that. Um, what I, What I'd love to see, I think we haven't yet had a conversation about, well, if the government is offering equal pay. How do we extend that to the private sector since we're still working on that with women still making less per dollar than men and African-American women and Latino women making less than that. We're still dealing with that. Um, So I think it's still a big active question, but I still think it's pretty pretty neat that the military is is laying this foundation that we should be building on a little bit more than we already are.
0: (laughs) I just found that point so interesting because I had never heard of the women's integration act and women's army integration act. And that is really just such an interesting, uh, uh, parallel also with the integration of African-Americans in the army yes. in 48 and all these things that are um, happening at that time. I just, I think it's really absolutely a wonderful point that you make there. It's really very eye-opening, you know, and I love the story that you tell about Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I expected Marilyn Monroe pops up in this book. And so can you explain how the controversy over her appearance comes into your story? (laughs) Um,
1: So, after the Women's Armed Services Integration Act of 48, they kind of have a slow start getting women in. There's They talk about military necessity, but aside from like the Berlin airlift and the occupation of uh, Germany and, and Japan, it's not like there's a huge need right away. But then Korea happens, the Korean War hits and in 1951, They've made this decision to do a huge joint recruiting campaign, uh, share service for freedom. And they decide, you know what, we're going to go to the Miss America pageant because they're trying to promote this image. um, they're, They're trying to make it accessible to American parents. If you're under the age of 21, your parents have to sign off on you joining the service. So they want parents to see this as a wholesome um, really worthwhile activity for their daughters to do. There have been some moments in World War II where um, the press had tried to suggest there were some problems in the, in the military for women. They're trying to correct that. So it's this very refined image. They're always really, their hair always looks amazing. They look like they're in perfect makeup. They've got the hats. Uh, I think one of my favorite small little anecdotes is that the Marine Corps had a lipstick shade that matched the red on their on their hat, for example, which has nothing to do with anything but appearance, but it's just, it gives you a sense of how appearance really matters to them. So Miss America, they're thinking, they're not thinking swimsuits, because that's not really at issue yet. They're thinking Miss America, it's community service, it's um, these women who represent the best of american womanhood so they send a bunch of women recruiters out there to pass out flyers talk to, uh, to people who are there just really promote the whole thing well just so happens it's the first year that the pageant also decides to have um uh not a moderator but um they, they use Marilyn monroe as essentially their uh marshal their grand marshal for the parade that they have and some other events and Marilyn monroe is up-and-coming starlet at the time. She's starting to make big news. There's a really great clip on YouTube of just the the parade with her in a car, waving. Um, There's no sound, but you can see her going down the street in the car. Um, And then she takes a photograph with four service women. Somebody's like, oh, let's take this picture. And I wish I could have included the image in the book. Um, I couldn't, but you can find it online so people can go looking for it. It's a beautiful picture. She's in the middle, the four women around her are smiling, they look great. Uh, the article that I found when I found this in a scrapbook in the National Archives, it was something to the effect of Army official orders photograph killed. And within hours of seeing this image, uh, a disgruntled army official said, No, we can't publish this. And if you look at it, by 1950s standards, I mean, maybe Marilyn's dress is a little low cut. It's certainly much lower cut than the service women around her. Um, So they're worried that people will see that and start associating service and sexualization and they don't want that. (laughs) That's not their interest at all. So they try to cut it, but of course it, it gets published and today it's on the internet. So (laughs) it didn't work very well. Um, Of course, uh, about a year later, Uh, Marilyn's footage from the parade also becomes the cover of Playboy, so I'm sure that wouldn't have helped.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they really have to walk that line, right, between feminine beauty and modesty. Exactly. You know, that you're not sending your daughter off to be in the army and to be kind of become promiscuous. Yes. Right? And there's that fear. That's a really thin line, I guess, that the army has to walk. Um, between feminine, you know, real feminine outward, you know, makeup and hair and clothing and, and also promiscuity. And, yes. you know, and certainly I think Marilyn Monroe is such a, she really knew how to walk that line in her own career, but I could see how that really created, a public, <laughs> a, a, you know, a publicity nightmare for the, uh, for the military at that time. Really interesting. So what jobs were open to women during the Cold War? You know, how were they trained? To be, have military careers and to to be in the military.
1: It's, it's really interesting because the bottom line is no combat. That's the one thing everybody agrees on. And during World War Two, women had done a number of things like there have been women fixing trucks or driving trucks and things like that. But there's a conversation early on where somebody says, look, we, we know women can drive trucks and fix them. But are we using them the best way if we do that? It's where this gender difference idea comes in that they're thinking, surely there must be things women are better at that we can put them in. We've got men who can do that. If we need to, we'll use a woman. But um, not that she can't do it, but just, like you said, it's that image. They don't want to have a bunch of women getting dirty and grease necessarily. Um, it ends up being a lot of jobs that are similar to what women do in the civilian world. So a lot of desk work, um, but they're doing it. One of the things I think is interesting is that we can look at it and say, okay, they're secretaries, they're receptionists, they're also doing public, public relations, they're doing recruiting. They do, some of them move into specialized jobs like engineering-related fields, um, meteorology, cartography. Um, So especially in particular, uh, I got to interview the mother of a good friend of mine from graduate school. And she was in the waves in the early 70s, just before things switched. And essentially she was working on early computers. So there's a lot of ways in which it's stuff that doesn't look necessarily like, wow, what an interesting job, but they're doing it at them in very non-traditional places. So you might be stationed in Japan, or you might be stationed, you might be stationed in St. Louis, Missouri, or, you know, Washington, D.C., but also it's just that context differs. So um, they say that they're going to test them and see exactly where they're going to fit best. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes women would come in having done secretarial training in high school, and um, I think I'd talk about one woman who Spent years helping her father's dentist practice, and they're like, "Yeah, we're going to put you in dental support because you've got the training." Um, and she wanted to do something else entirely. Or a woman who got the highest score on electronics in her class, and they're like, "Yeah, you can totally do that." And then they went, "Oh no, that's a man's field. You can't do that one." And that changes over time. In the fifties and sixties, it's fairly regular. We get a few exceptions here and there um, with some really interesting roles, but. Um, it is pretty similar. I think it is, though, the benefits and the equal pay and the opportunity for travel and training. Those It's those um, ancillary things on the side that make it something a little different than just getting a job on Main Street, perhaps, with the people that you always knew.
0: Yeah, it's like fringe benefits of having a more yes. exciting life, right? That the, exactly. the opportunities for that generation looked pretty limited. Absolutely. And this is like you know, one of the off-ramps that you could take that was socially acceptable, but offered a little bit of adventure. It's really, uh, it really is very enticing to people who didn't want to go down that traditional track. I think it really, it really is. So the book also takes an intersectional approach. Yes. So can you talk about how the military created opportunities for women from different backgrounds?
1: Yes, absolutely. And there's a few ways we can think about that. So on the one hand, um, going from our, our last conversation, we were just talking about women who are maybe not able to pay for college. So it's definitely a class level here. And several of the women I spoke to said, well, college was not an option. And I know we think of after World War II, um, college enrollments get higher and higher in the U.S. But there's still a lot of Americans for whom that's not true. And this is a great way to, to go in another direction. But what I think is really interesting, um, and and I will be totally honest, I I think there's a history that needs to be told here about African-American women in the military, and I'm just barely scratching the surface. Um, And this is something that I would love to see another scholar come in and really do something great with. Um, The Women's Armed Services Integration Act of 1948 passes June 12th. Six weeks later, on July 26th, Truman orders the desegregation of the military. There's been a lot written about that, but it's not been written about in terms of women's service. The men's service, it takes a few years. Um, Executive order was very intentional. This was a Congress that was not going to work with a Democrat. They were not going to desegregate the military. They barely let women in. So they're not thinking radically. Truman's executive order lays the groundwork, but it will take a while for men to be desegregated um, through the Korean War. But the women's services, the Air Force is just starting out it's just begun in 1947, 1948. They're almost always integrated. Now, numbers of Black women and minority women are very small. Uh, The Women's uh, Army Corps by 1950 or thereabouts is integrated, and the same with the Navy. Uh, The women Marines, I think, in 1949 have their first African-American recruits, and they are living side by side. Now, the women Marines actually, for their first group of recruits at boot camps as well, let's arrange the women geographically rather than by by name. They are worried about, um, the assumption is that the African-American women are coming from the north, which they are, um, and what if you have southern recruits, what's going to happen there? They're requiring them to live and work side by side, but they're not yet providing any of the structures that would help them navigate what today we'd be doing with equity and inclusion work, for example. They're not helping them understand how do we overcome racial differences and what does it mean to to harass or discriminate someone. They're just assuming that if we tell you to live side by side and we tell you to do these, we can order you to work together, um, can't make you um, be more inclusive. So, um, but it's fascinating that here's an opportunity for African-American women and other women of color that is hard to get elsewhere. It still is hard to get And there's a number of reasons I think for that, the numbers of uh, black women in particular stay very low for a long time. Those are the, we can get statistics on black women. It's harder to get other women of color, for example, but they stay low. I think there's a few reasons. I think that part of it is um, absolutely racism in American society. So if you have to go into a local recruiting office in order to join, I could my guess would be that in the South, it might be harder to get access to a recruiting office, or if you get in there, what are the odds that somebody's going to be supportive? I mean, the recruiters are coming from all over. So I'm I'm not, it's, it's very possible that a recruiter in Montgomery, Alabama, could have come from New York city and be more open. Um, But I think there's some of that. I think there's informal racism uh, practices that are absolutely prevalent, but also uh, these are the years Brown versus board of education doesn't happen to the mid fifties. I might, what I can notice about high school graduation rates for Black Americans is still fairly low until um, till later on in the Cold War, just with the way things are structured in American society at the time. You have to have a high school diploma to get in. So that's gonna be one possible barrier. Uh, one of my favorite leaders, uh, Colonel Mildred Bailey, or <coughs> General Mildred Bailey, my, uh, she's a Colonel, then a general. Um, she spent a lot of time talking about that. She's like, I don't know why. And we we tried. I'm like, yeah, you're not trying that hard. But certainly uh, magazines like Jet um, catering to a Black audience in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they're promoting this. So look, this is a great career. They're highlighting some of the highest ranking Black women. So Black women are absolutely going to the military wherever they can, taking those jobs. Um, I've I've talked to or looked at oral histories of some of them. Um, The biggest problem I had personally was... um, finding people to interview, they are out there. I have to confess, my networks are not good enough to get access. And when you use things from like the Library of Congress, which is a wonderful site with the Veterans History Project, you can't always tell what race the person is, who you're looking at, um, because it's often just text. Um, so some of it is careful reading the archives and realizing that, oh, this is someone who is Black in the military in 1965. I want to know what their story is. But I'm really helpful that people can build on this and that maybe this opens the door and we can get some really good histories of uh, black women and other women of color in the years ahead so please somebody do that work
0: (laughs) that's yeah that's really great how about women who are uh lesbians in the in the uh, military
1: and this kind of goes back to our other conversation about um what's acceptable right um they don't want women to be too promiscuous but they're also very aware that they're creating a feminine space in a masculine institution like oh no what if the lesbians all come they that's totally inappropriate at the time from a military perspective because lesbianism at the time is still classified as um psychiatrically deviant um, totally unacceptable if you are a homosexual um man or woman you're going to be discharged dishonorably you're done so they're, they're watching for it. And I was building on some of the work of Margot Cannaday, whose book looks at um, how the military constructed lesbianism in the 1950s. They don't really know what lesbianism is as part of her argument. And that leads to witch hunts in the early 50s in particular, where they're trying to find out what's going on. Are there illicit relationships happening between women who are here? They're trying to prevent lesbians from entering the military. But they don't actually know how to do that. They don't they can't just look at somebody and go, oh, that's a lesbian. They're they're really going off of assumptions that a lesbian is going to look a certain way, and they're often wrong, <laughs> which is surprising for them. They're like, oh, we would never guess. But they also make a lot of wrong assumptions as well. So there's a lot of efforts to ensure that they have not accidentally recruited the wrong kind of woman. And yet. It's definitely not foolproof, and I think that's another area, too, where we do have oral histories and and accounts from people who did serve, both men and women, during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, Um, but certainly there is an underlying message that, no, you should not be here, and we don't want you here, and we will do what we can to get you out of here if we catch you.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So was marriage and motherhood an obstacle to women who entered military careers? Yes,
1: It's really interesting because during World War II, if you were a mother or a wife, it was less of an obstacle in having young children, certainly. But after the war, it pretty much becomes that you need to be a single woman in order to join the military. Um, This changes over time, but at least in the first um, five to 10 years, you have to be a single woman. And they... Keep saying during the Women's Armed Services Integration Act discussions like, well, we want to be able to discharge women for pregnancy or for other reasons. Um, And then the early 50s, they really tamp down on that and say, no, if you have young children, you cannot be in the military, you have to be a mother because they're really envisioning military service as something for single women or young women before they get married or women who just haven't had children yet. So some of their leaders are women who stay in for years and years, but are either unmarried or just never have children. Um, So it's certainly, it's it's a big sticking point. And the earliest case I'm aware of is about 1950 is a woman who says, look, I've been well-trained. I'm speaking multiple languages. I'm serving overseas. Why are you telling me I have to leave? Because I can be a mother and a service member. And they're like, no, we don't think so. So there's an executive order that gets added on in the early 50s, and it just gets a harder line. No, Even if you adopt a child or um, if you are a stepmother, so if you get married and you are a stepmother for a child that resides more than 30 days a year in your house, you're out. Now, flip side, if you're the dad, that doesn't matter. They presume that a serviceman who becomes widowed or divorced has family support. But if you're the mother or stepmother, it's not happening. Um, and this won't change until the early 60s. They start granting waivers and saying, okay, well that let Yeah, you can stay or you can stay. Um, And in the 70s, they start to really change it. But it's still an issue today. For example, Uh, there's just an article last month in the Washington Post about a woman who at the Air Force Academy was pregnant while she was a student and had to literally pay to adopt her child out to her parents and then pay to adopt her child back once she finished her education which blew my mind. I knew it was a problem in the sixties and seventies, but I was not aware that we're still facing this issue today.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, because they really make a big investment in these women training them Yes, and you would think they would want to retain them. Um, And it also, I guess, really affects women um, who are building up enough years for retirement and pension, right? I mean, yes that's really a big part of your employment goals, right? It is really to get is. retirement so that you get the pension.
1: Exactly. And, and there's a lot of women who, I, I think they can get away with this for so long in the cold war, because a lot of women come in for a year or two or three, a fair number of them don't finish their service necessarily. They've got some turnover issues for various reasons, but um, the women who do stay. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to lose them. Um, so, so um, Von Wantok in the Navy in the early 70s, she's been in the military for more than a decade, her husband's in the military, and they get pregnant, and she goes to the Navy and says, look, you have trained me, and I have had a career, and I am this close to retirement, and they say, well, okay, you can stay, but you have to retire on your first eligible date of retirement. Fortunately for her, by the time um, she reaches that date, they've changed all the policies. She served till her daughter's in high school in the 80s, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, that's that's pioneering right there.
0: She waits them out. (laughs) Yes, it was great. She waited it out. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. So I'm still hopeful that the Equal Rights Amendment will become the 28th Amendment. And you talk about the ERA in her Cold War. So what impact does it have on your story?
1: I think this is the decade when everything changes. And, And that ends up being, I think, arguably the last third of the book is I'm looking at the way I envision it is the last third of the book is how are changes outside the military combining with efforts to change inside the military and and how does it all kind of explode in these possibilities because the 70s really if if we want to get really close to like where did the change really happen the 70s really shift us to a military that looks more familiar today and the ERA I think is huge or at least the specter of the ERA. But that's the thing that has military leaders going, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? So you've got pressure from women in the 60s and the early 70s, um, but then and there's other things happening. So for example, um, 1973, uh, the Supreme Court rules in Frontero versus Richardson, which I love not only because Frontero was uh, in the military and she was fighting for spousal benefits because the policy said, if you are, if you're in the military, your husband cannot be considered a benefit. I'm sorry, a dependent for benefit purposes. Um, if he'd been a wife, absolutely would have benefits. But they had never granted male spouses benefits unless you could prove that he was dependent on you for more than half of his support. So maybe if you were married to a disabled veteran, for example, or something like that, that they're making allowances for that. But otherwise they're assuming the husband's the breadwinner. And in 73, the Supreme Court rules in this case, which was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's first appearance at the Supreme Court, which is why it gets talked about a lot of places and has become pretty remarkable the court says, well, no, actually, you can't deny male spouses that because they're men and because women are the ones in the military. Not only do they change that rule, they also give back pay to all the back benefits to all the women whose spouses should have had them for years. Um, My favorite with that is um, General Mildred Bailey. By that time, she's been serving since World War II. Her husband passed away in the 60s. She got back benefits. uh, Even after his death, they've for, for the years he had been alive. Um, so that's, that's a huge change and, and maybe arguably influenced a little bit by the pressure from the Equal Rights Amendment. But within the military too, they're going, all right, this legislation is coming through and it had been coming through before. The Equal Rights Amendment was not new, but it was getting this, this attention that had never really gotten it there before. And they start doing research what's going to have to change what will we have to do um and people outside like the yale law journal is like well here's what's going to happen if the era <laughs> passes and they determine we're going to have to get rid of um these the anything that's gender-based in terms of <coughs> um you know uh, limitations on women they're not saying combat they're not saying that they'll move women into combat they're saying they're going to have to rethink how they justify who plays which role. And then now we will have to switch to this gender sameness approach, which will be more focused on what is this individual capable of. There's still, though, going to stick with this idea that, you know, we think this could affect combat, but we're not going to go there quite yet. Um, it causes the different women's components as i call them within the military to start dissolving so they had administrative structures for women in the navy and the marine corps and the air force the directors of those in those roles they all kind of dissolve the women stay or they retire and they just now it's all one military the women's army corps had been the biggest administrative structure totally gone by 1978 They also decide by 1975, they're having discussions about putting women into the military academies. And the debate's there. This is for combat leadership. Women can't be in combat. Why would they be combat leadership? This doesn't make sense. Um, They're like, no, we can't deny this. There's a a great piece from the testimonies where a representative, I think, from Minnesota says, "Um, I had these applicants for the Air Force Academy. Only one was a pilot, but she was a woman. So I couldn't accept her. Why am I having to say no to the only pilot who's actually applying to go to the Air Force Academy? Um, so the Air Force Academy is open and the ERA hasn't been ratified. It's still moving through the States. So they're making these changes in anticipation of what might come, not really knowing what might come. Um, and it just, it, it causes such a shift in how we understand the military. Um, and I think that's when we start to see even more these sharp, relief between well wait how do you have men and women in here but we're still going to say women can't do these things but men can um i think maybe in some ways those those uh um those issues just come to light even more as you get rid of other barriers
0: yeah it's interesting that they decide that they're going to get in front of the changes that are coming yes and it really shows like uh, you know a, a, an enormous degree of leadership on on the part of the military in recognizing the kinds of reforms that they want to take in and uh, in order to be, a, you know, kind of a nimble and dynamic institution. Yeah. Um, and I really do think that the impact of the service academies into, you know, accepting women was a, an enormous change in American society.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a hard one for the women who are accepted in those early years, and probably even to some degree today, um, given what we hear in the news these days. But um, yeah, such an important, important moment. Because if you don't have women in the military, if the women, if the military academies exist in part for combat leadership, Yes, you can create women as generals. The first female generals get get um, promoted in the early '70s. By the end of the '70s, we have two-star female generals. But if you can't go into combat leadership, you're never going to reach those higher levels of military administration. Which means that military leadership is going to stay male. Um, so for for women, for African Americans, you if you don't open that space, you're always going to have a white male leadership. And then how do you do even greater institutional change if everybody at the top is is what they've always been for centuries. So I think I think that just is such an important moment that now what we've been able to have then since the admission of women to the service academies, now we're seeing greater change in the upper levels. It is still predominantly white male, absolutely, but we've got four-star female generals. My Facebook memory feed reminded me today that it's been um, 12 years, I'm sorry, 13 years since the first four-star female general was appointed. Uh, it's just, it leads to remarkable change in, it takes not not a short period of time, but certainly important period of time.
0: Yeah. And you know, you wonder, you know, the question it begs the question, right? How does this change the conversation Yeah, in terms of national security and yes. American diplomacy and the planning going forward? And, you know, I, I think that we've seen some, uh, you know, women in the CIA, right? Gina yeah. Haskell and, and you know, we've seen like these these women kind of becoming the face of some of these important military and intelligence institutions. Absolutely. It's really great. Yeah. So well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Do you have another project that you're working on? That's the
1: the thing I'm figuring out now is because I spent so long on this that it's it became, oh wow, I can do something else now. <laughs> So I'm I'm not quite sure. My goal is to spend this spring um, exploring a few different ideas. I'd love to keep doing something in women's history. I don't know if my next project will be military history, although that said, I am still very interested in some of the female leaders. So part of me thinks maybe something focused on one or two of them would be very interesting, Um, but also possibly maybe looking at something involving the history of uh, race and gender and education um, might be an interesting spinoff too. So we'll see what happens, but I'm excited to see what I can do next and not take 10 years on the next one.
0: <laughs> well, you have made my veterans day. I feel so like wonderful. I have fully celebrated veterans day, having talked about women in the military during the cold war. And I want to thank Tanya L Roth for joining me on the show today. I really enjoyed her cold war Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.